How do we separate myth from reality? What makes some stories feel more real than others? How does a story capture our interest so deeply that we will keep telling it again and again? With each retelling of a story, does it change? Is a story a kind of living thing? Will the story I tell you today be repeated and shifted to become yet something else? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who likes a bedtime story as much as the next person, but also likes to turn out the light and go to sleep knowing it was just a story and not, say, fodder for a toxic worldview and obsessive eugenic quest. This week, we're going to visit the lost city of Atlantis. Not physically, of course, and not to try to find its gold and treasures, but rather to figure out how one man's cautionary tale about the folly of humans inspired generations of historians, archaeologists, treasure hunters, and even genocide. We'll try to figure out how a story went from a legend to political tool to pseudo-archaeology. In other words... We're going to Indiana Jones territory. The lost city of Atlantis, that mythical underwater metropolis that has made its way into countless books, movies, songs, and more. It's the X that marks the spot on a weathered treasure map from a children's adventure book. If you can solve all the puzzles, answer all the riddles, and decipher all the clues, you will be led to the buried city of Atlantis with all the riches you can imagine. But before it was the topic of the journey to the center of the Earth, or Aquaman, or even one of the go-to stories the Nazis used to justify the Holocaust, Atlantis was one of Plato's many thought experiments. Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher who brought us such hits as Plato's Republic, which I tried to read several times, the allegory of the cave, and the basis for our modern-day study of math and science. He was an influential guy, that Plato. In one of Plato's dialogues, basically a philosophical tome written out as two people debating, arguing, and picking apart a topic, which was arguably more engaging for the average non-philosopher readership to understand than just a dry essay, he told the tale of a mythical land he called Atlantis. The dialogue is called Timaeus and Critias, named for the two men having the theoretical chit-chat. Atlantis was an ancient civilization made up of a race of people who were half-human, half-god. They were descendants of the god Poseidon and mortal Cleido. It might be worth mentioning here that Plato's father also claimed that their family were descendants of Poseidon, and call me cranky, but once you start claiming you're descended from an actual god, I'm out. Whether or not Plato believed he was the descendant of the god of water, earthquakes, and horses, which is a pretty hodgepodge collection of things to be the god of, if you ask me, I don't know. Regardless, the people of Atlantis, Plato said, definitely were. Plato described the nation of Atlantis as a veritable Garden of Eden, but on a much larger scale. They had technology far more advanced than many modern-day cultures, and certainly more advanced than any culture of its time, circa 9,000 BCE, when humans were still living as hunter-gatherers. Atlantis was laid out in a series of concentric circles, two of land and three of water, which were so precisely equidistant from each other, it was almost as if they'd been measured out, like a bullseye. In his 2016 book, Meet Me in Atlantis, Across Three Continents in Search of the Lost City, 
Author Mark Adams summarized Plato's description of Atlantis this way. Atlantis was the wealthiest kingdom ever known, and what few things it could not provide for itself, it obtained through trade. Atlantis was rich in orichalcum, a glistening metal whose preciousness was second only to gold. Fruits, flowers, and domesticated grain crops flourished, and the island's lush plants supported abundant wildlife, including many elephants. Plato spends some time describing how the city was laid out, with a lot of details about infrastructure, including the detail that the wall built around the interior island was made of white, black, and red stone, a fact that author Adams suggests the reader remember for later. So let's remember that for later. Adams continues... In the innermost circle of the concentric rings, the kings of Atlantis built a spectacular palace, a marvel to behold for size and for beauty. There was also a shrine to Poseidon and his wife Clato, which was surrounded by a wall of gold. This temple was one stayed long and half a stayed wide, approximately 600 by 300 feet, and had a strange, barbaric appearance. The walls and ceilings were covered in precious metals and ivory, Inside, gold statues had been erected, including a roof-scraping Poseidon guiding a chariot led by six-winged horses. A beautifully crafted altar stood outside the temple. Nearby were two springs, one hot and one cold. Their overflow was used to irrigate the grove of Poseidon, in which grew all manner of trees of wonderful height and beauty. The denouement of Plato's tale of Atlantis is its violent destruction, which Adam summarized this way. But then, it waged an unprovoked imperialistic war on the remainder of Asia and Europe. When Atlantis attacked, Athens showed its excellence as the leader of the Greeks, the much smaller city-state and the only power to stand against Atlantis. Athens triumphed over the invading Atlantean forces, defeating the enemy, preventing the free from being enslaved, and freeing those who had been enslaved. And that's when the gods got mad. Despite the fact that Atlantis had been defeated by Plato's home team, Athens, the gods punished the people of Atlantis for their hubris and greed. Adams continues, There occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea. Lord knows I'm no philosopher, but from what I can gather, the moral of the story of Atlantis is that greed will ruin not just humankind, but whole countries. I think this particular story is sort of a companion piece to Plato's The Republic, in which Plato is like, here's how to run a proper and just society. Atlantis serves as an example of how disastrous it could be to get it wrong. In the dialogue, Critias tells Timaeus that he heard the story of Atlantis from his grandfather, who had heard it from the Athenian statesman Solon, 300 years before Plato's time, who had learned it from an Egyptian priest, who said it happened 9,000 years before that. So, just to be real clear, this story, written by a person who wrote fictional stories as lessons about how to live a morally upstanding life or how to run a just, equitable, and not corrupt society, has a fictional character admit that the story is more than 9,000 years old and has only been passed down orally. 
like a nearly millennium-long game of telephone, but also crossing language barriers. Considering how major events in our day get drastically warped within the span of a decade or two, and that's with the benefit of photo and video evidence, I think it's safe to say that even if Plato's story of Atlantis was based on something real, it probably got hella embellished over the centuries, kind of like the Bible. If not, it would be the only story to have survived intact ever in the history of time. But, of course, some people thought Plato's story of the mythical city of Atlantis was a true historical account, kind of like the Bible. Because humans, for some strange reason, have a hard time parsing out parable from fact. Over time, countless hours, human power, and money have been spent trying to find the real Atlantis. And some of the motivations for wanting to uncover the lost city are enough to make the gods furious. So, how did we get from a parable written in 360 BCE about greed and power to Scratlantis, the lost city of prehistoric squirrels, in Ice Age 4, Continental Drift? For almost two millennia, the story of Atlantis chugged along intact, with the majority of people seemingly in the know that it was a metaphorical allegory. That is, until 1882, when a very eccentric U.S. senator named Ignatius Donnelly published a book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, in which he laid out his argument that Atlantis was a real place. And if you don't know what antediluvian means, because honestly, why would you? It means belonging to a time before the biblical flood. I googled that. That's not just, like, a fact I know. Donnelly, it seems, was a real enthusiast for antediluvian times. The modern day, as far as he was concerned, was a real bummer. He once wrote, Corruption dominates the ballot box, the legislatures, the Congress. The people are demoralized. The newspapers are largely subsidized or muzzled. Public opinion silenced. Business prostrated. Homes covered with mortgages, labor impoverished. Wow, that could absolutely be a quote about today. Now that's demoralizing. Anyway. In his book, Donnelly highlighted 13 arguments that pointed to a real-life Atlantis, quote, where early mankind dwelt for ages in peace and happiness, end quote, that basically boiled down to this. There once existed in the Atlantic Ocean opposite the Mediterranean Sea a large island, which was the remnant of an Atlantic continent and known to the ancients as Atlantis. This was the region where man first rose from a state of barbarism to civilization. It was a populous and mighty nation from whose emigrants the shores of the Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi River, the Amazon River, the Pacific coast of South America, the Mediterranean, the west coast of Europe and Africa, the Baltic and Black Sea, and the Caspian, were populated by civilized nations, creating the true antediluvian world, the Garden of Eden, the gardens of Hesperides, the Elysian Fields, the gardens of Alcinos, the Mesomphilos, the Olympos, the Asgard of the traditions of the ancient nations. 
Early mankind dwelt there for ages in peace and happiness. Gods and goddesses of the ancient Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Hindus, and the Scandinavians were simply the kings, queens, and heroes of Atlantis. The mythology of Egypt, the oldest colony formed by Atlantis, and Peru represented the original religion of Atlantis, which was sun worship. The implements of the Bronze Age of Europe were derived from Atlantis. The Atlanteans were also the first manufacturers of iron, and the Phoenician alphabet, parent of the European alphabets, was derived from an Atlantis alphabet. That Atlantis was the original seat of the Aryan or Indo-European family of nations. Donnelly was largely dismissed as a crackpot and didn't do himself any favors doggedly pursuing another harebrained theory that Francis Bacon was the true author of all of Shakespeare's works. In his book, Meet Me in Atlantis, author Mark Adams accuses Donnelly of being a bag of winds, which is the best shade I've ever heard thrown, who basically cherry-picked information to support whatever theory he was trying to sell. Unfortunately, not everyone dismissed Donnelly, though, and his research launched a new era of Atlantis fandom with deadly consequences. Only six years after Donnelly's book came out, a woman known as Madame Blavatsky published a book called The Secret Doctrine, in which she expanded on Plato's original text and claimed that the people of Atlantis were one of four root races and that their descendants made up a fifth race, the most superior race, the Aryans. It turns out, before the Nazis adopted the word to mean basically blonde hair, blue-eyed Nazi youth poster boy, Aryan referred to Indo-European people who spoke similar languages and who may or may not have settled in ancient Iran and the northern Indian subcontinent, i.e. Tibet. So the word Aryan, just like the myth of Atlantis, got co-opted by some serious bad actors who used it to justify some pretty bad shit. In the early 1900s, around the time Adolf Hitler, this fucking guy, and his cronies were sitting around being like, Ach, we have to come up with a justification for a major land grab. Hitler was drawing inspiration from some of his favorite anti-Semites, like American automaker Henry Ford, no, I will not stop ragging on him, and Blavatsky, who claimed that there was a superior race of people called Aryans descended from Atlantis and managed to turn the word into a very definition of whiteness, with its roots not being Indo-European, but Nordic, which is just about as white as you can get. One of Hitler's stooges, Heinrich Himmler, believed that the Third Reich was a modern incarnation of the ancient superior race. Listen... Don't think too hard about that. How a group of enlisted people can constitute a race? Who knows? Just like there's no such thing as a blue life, members of the Third Reich chose to be members of the Third Reich. I'm no geneticist, but I'm pretty sure that's not how master races work. But that didn't matter to Heinrich Himmler. Himmler decided that Atlantis had dominated over Europe Africa and South America from somewhere between Britain and Portugal. Again, try not to think too hard about it, it literally makes no sense. Apparently, it never occurred to him that the Atlanteans might not have been white. 
I think in his racism-addled pea brain, he assumed that if one group of people had dominated another, they must have been white. So obsessed with Atlantis was he that Himmler founded the Institute for the Study of Atlantis with a place called House Atlantis as their headquarters. Himmler and his buddy and fellow shitbag Herman Wirth even set out to find Atlantis in search of evidence proving that A, it existed, and B, that the Aryans who dwelt there, mind you, their version of Aryans, were the superior race. And of course, if the Nazis could prove they were the superior race, they could justify invading any country they wanted and ultimately cleansing the Earth of anyone they deemed unfit in order to restore the planet back to a superior race of man. Oh my God, it's so exhausting. Himmler and Wirth believed, based on their super scientific calculations, that Madame Blavatsky was onto something when she claimed, in another part of her theory, that the descendants of Atlantis had made their way to the mountains of Tibet. They also believed that the Tibetan symbol for peace, which the Nazis co-opted to symbolize the exact opposite and called the swastika, was a clue that Tibetans had come from Atlantis. Again, the logic is threadbare, so don't try too hard. But their argument was that the swastika had been used in Atlantis, who knows where they got that information from, and the survivors of Atlantis fled to the highest mountains they could in order to escape suffering another flood ever again. Look, the list of awful things the Nazis were is long, but one thing that can be said for them is they knew how to weave a tale. Their entire justification for the Holocaust was built on a very colorful lie. So, in 1938, Himmler sent an expedition to the Himalayas, led by explorer Ernst Schaefer, to prove this cockamamie theory. Now, if you were setting out to try to prove that a specific race of people were descended from another race of people, what kind of scientist would you send? I'm no racist genocider, but it seems to me the right kind of scientist for this particular job would have been an anthropologist, no? Schaefer was an explorer and, wait for it, a zoologist. And in true racist colonizer fashion, Schaefer went around measuring people's heads to show they had master race origins. What's most interesting to me about this is why they didn't think the Atlanteans settled somewhere where the people were so white they're practically see-through, i.e. the Netherlands. If the Nazis were so horny for white people, why not pick a land known for its paper-complected people? Not only that, but Himmler had a serious thing for Nordic myth. Odin, Thor, Ragnarok, all that Avengers stuff. So it's confusing why he set his sights on a region filled with people he would be much more likely to add to his roster of Holocaust victims than celebrate as paragons of humanity. I mean, I guess the colonizer mentality does encourage popping up somewhere that isn't yours and claiming that it is. Much to the Nazis' chagrin, and not surprisingly, they did not find any blonde-haired, blue-eyed people living in Tibet. Instead of admitting defeat, however, which would have been the rational thing to do, they used their utter lack of any evidence of a supposed master race from Atlantis that fled to Tibet to prove that the master race had been diluted through centuries of racial mixing, and therefore, the Holocaust was necessary to cleanse the world. I can't. Who knows why the Nazis had a bug up their butts for Tibet? 
Most people are less concerned with where the descendants of Atlantis ended up and are more interested in where Atlantis itself might have been. So, where on Earth, or in the sea, might this fantastical land of many riches and elephants have been? Surely, evidence of such a massive empire wouldn't be gone completely, even if it had been destroyed in one day and one night, as Plato said, which would at least have to be hyperbole, right? Some Indiana Jones types believe that the clues as to where the island was located are there for all to see in Plato's writing. Plato says the island was located, quote, just beyond the Pillars of Hercules. Less pillars and more huge rocks, one is located in Gibraltar in Europe and the other on the coast of North Africa. The so-called pillars are seen as a sort of gateway between the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. One of the most plausible candidates is the island today known as Santorini, but whose ancient name was Minoa, near the Greek islands. And this would make sense, especially considering your boy Plato was, in fact, Greek. The first thing anyone will tell you is the key to good writing is write what you know. Minoa is believed to be Europe's first great civilization, complete with palaces, paved roads, and written language long before those were standard staples of society. The island of Santorini today, when looked at from above, could be said to look like what might be left of an ancient landmass of concentric circles if part of it had been buried at some point by a cataclysmic event like a tsunami. Even more intriguing than that, though, are the red, white, and black rocks commonly found on the island, just like the ones author Mark Adams asked us to remember for later. Remember? And even more intriguing than the very intriguing red, white, and black rocks are the ruins discovered on Santorini in the mid-1900s by archaeologist Spiridon Marinatus, which include extremely detailed paintings depicting the booming seaport town of an arguably pretty advanced culture for its day. Manoa did indeed vanish quickly, though its demise was brought about by a massive volcano eruption, something Plato never mentions. Then again, he was telling the story almost an entire millennia later, so one might be able to forgive him missing this detail. The timing isn't right either, though, as Manoa collapsed sometime between 1600 and 1500 BCE, and Atlantis was said to have sunk thousands of years before that. Another hole in the Manoa as Atlantis theory is that every indication is that the Minoans were a peaceful people. The Atlanteans, remember, were supposed to be great warriors, hell-bent on conquering surrounding nations. Some Atlantis hunters, including the late Senator Ignatius Donnelly I mentioned earlier, believed Atlantis lived in the neighborhood of what is now called Azores, off the west coast of North Africa. Based on not much more than a hunch, Donnelly and others believed the mountain islands were all that was left of the great city of Atlantis after it had sunk in the floods. Unfortunately for this camp, it seems the Azor Mountains largely sank millions of years ago. Despite that fact, though, some people believe the man-made structures on the islands are evidence that an ancient and highly advanced civilization once lived in the Azor Mountains. The structures, however, only date back 2,000 years, which leaves me wondering how often historians cherry-pick information to fit a narrative they're trying to sell. I'm pretty sure the answer is often. Very, very often. 
One of the most compelling theories comes from a computer scientist named Michael Hubner working in the early aughts. Hubner culled 51 geographical clues from Plato's text and ran the data through a computer program that led him not to the ocean floor, but to the coastline of Morocco. When he traveled to the area, he found more possible evidence that his computer program was right. Unfortunately, the Moroccan government has shown no interest in funding or allowing digs into pre-Islamic ruins. And then there are the theories, like the ones floated by Donnelly, Blavatsky, and the Nazis, that appear to be based on nothing more than wild speculation and creative embellishment. Like the one proposed in the 70s by paranormal author Charles Berlitz that Atlantis was near the Bahamas. He pointed to the newly discovered Bimini Road on the seafloor off the coast of Bimini in 1968 that he claimed was the road to Atlantis. Unfortunately for Berlitz and his camp, actual scientists determined that the so-called Bimini Road is not, in fact, a road at all, but just a naturally occurring rock formation. Incidentally, Berlitz believed that Atlantis didn't collapse from natural catastrophe, but had nuked itself out of existence 9,000 years ago, before the Stone Age, when humans were still hunter-gatherers. One would think if they were advanced enough to split the atom, they might have left a couple more obvious traces of themselves. Indeed, the very issue of how much more primitively humans lived 9,000 years ago is why most people don't believe that Plato's story is supposed to be true. Hell, we didn't even invent the wheel until more than 4,000 years after Plato said Atlantis was destroyed. But in 1994, archaeologist Klaus Schmidt discovered an ancient structure in Turkey that defied all accepted understanding of the timeline of human civilization and advancement. There, buried in a hill, was a temple called the Gobekli Tepe that was built 11,000 years ago. Not only was the architecture itself highly uncommon for the time in which it was built, but the intricate decorative carvings in the stone belied a high degree of sophistication not found in any other structures of its age. Schmidt believes it is the first human-built holy place and believes that it couldn't have been the only one of its kind and thinks it's evidence that a society similar to the one described by Plato could have existed. I'd like to jump in here and just say that it seems a bit hubristic to claim that Gobekli Tepe is the first human-built holy place. Lord knows I'm no historian, but it seems like a more accurate statement might be that this was the oldest example of a temple-like structure found so far. I'm pretty sure humans have been building holy places of one kind or another since the dawn of humanity. It's kind of our thing. We like to have places dedicated to our gods and our sports figures. And, of course, no theory of anything not immediately tangible would be complete without aliens. Everyone's favorite alien guy, Giorgio Tsaukalos, who you probably know as the guy with the hair from all the Discovery Channel shows about ancient aliens, suggested that Atlantis wasn't an island at all, but was, in fact, an alien spaceship that simply pulled up stakes and flew away. It's hard to say if Tsukalos actually believes this or if it makes for good TV. He's apparently a friend of a friend of mine, so maybe I can chase him down for a definitive answer. Aside from the Nazis and their wild racist goose chase in Tibet, 
Others had gone searching for the island of Atlantis, whether for its riches or just to be the ones to say, look, we found it. In 1931, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute set out on a 42-day expedition around the Azores Mountains, searching for evidence of Atlantis. They came back empty-handed. Sean Fisher, grandson of scuba pioneer and treasure hunter Mel Fisher, who had made his fortune salvaging treasures from old shipwrecks, has set out to fulfill his grandfather's dream of discovering Atlantis. Despite pouring money and manpower into the venture, he hasn't had any luck so far. And then, in January of 2015, marine archaeologists claim to have found a kind of metal called orichalcum that Plato mentioned in the story in the remnants of a ship that had wrecked 2,600 years earlier off the coast of Sicily. But the composition of the metal is debatable, as is the discovery itself. There appears to be no actual proof the metal was even found at all. As of today, here in the year 2022, no one has found any real evidence of the island of Atlantis. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the reason they haven't found it is because it never actually existed. Just like the cave Plato wrote about in the allegory of the cave, Atlantis is a metaphor. Of course, that one is right there in the title. Maybe Plato should have called it the metaphor of Atlantis. Anyway, sure, there is some evidence of ancient cultures living in proto-port cities, but that doesn't make them Atlanteans. Fables, myths, and parables are built from germs of truth. They exist to help show us the right path to tread, to warn us away from our own self-destructive tendencies. What's so ironic about this myth is that it is a cautionary tale about hubris and greed that somehow got twisted into a justification for hubris and greed, and worse, for hatred and murder. What would Plato say? He might say, you should not honor men more than truth, or arrogance is ever accompanied by folly. Actually, he did say those things. Plato may not have been descended of a god, but he knew people. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, we'll kick off Pride Month with part one of a two-part story about forbidden love with a tragic outcome. Alice and Frida, part one, a toxic love affair. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Ryan Garcia. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 